Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We should do just straight up radio theater. Like I'm prepared (laughs) to do like horse sounds. We get some coconuts. (laughs) Just like (laughs) just. I I will. I will be making the uh, the the rabble, rabble, rabble crowd noises. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias here with Jared Lynn, Jane Coaston. A while back, we went to Austin, Texas, to the Texas Tribune Festival, and we did a live show there, which we had hoped to record and release on our right. Weeds it, podcast feed. It was, in fact, advertised as a live taping of the Vox podcast, The Weeds. Yes, but... Technical difficulties prevented that from happening. So the episode was lost to the sands of time, but we had picked a good evergreenish topic, the wall, and we're just waiting for the appropriate moment to come back and, and think about it. And now as we have a yet another standoff over government appropriations about the wall, it seemed timely. Uh, but we are going to try not to talk too much about the particularities of this congressional standoff because – I mean, I think the key point in all of this is that, like, the wall is not just or even primarily a physical object. Right, right, right. If this were really a conversation about, like, exactly what kind of materials are needed and exactly where should they be built and exactly how much does it cost, we wouldn't have this recurring thing where Donald Trump says, wall or no government, and Democrats say, no wall. And, like, that's where the conversation Ends. Right, like right. that's that should signal that there's something else going on here beyond the nitty gritty of policy. But I do think a, a useful way to start this, though, is with some literal yes. wall. Right. And so something that always strikes me whenever I hear arguments about the wall is that um, I have been this was years ago. This is before Donald Trump. But I was in San Diego and I went down a little bit south of downtown to the U.S.-Mexico border where you will find a large wall. Uh, this is, it's a big, beautiful wall. It, uh, it extends somewhat out into the ocean so that you cannot swim right around the wall. Although uh, you can boat 
You could probably get on a boat, yeah. but I mean, there. Then... I definitely have. Yeah, there. There is definitely a certain amount of border patrol interception of people who just kind of boat around. But the I'm wall. just, you know, what, what what I saw starting in the ocean, extending yeah. onto the land, and then quite a ways into the land to the port of entry, yep. and then on the other side there was more wall, and then I I don't know how far you could follow that. I I didn't go. I didn't right. look. But, yeah, but uh, it is super built up. Like you literally, you know, you can see the billboards on the other side of the border. But you can't see where the U.S. ends and Mexico begins because there's just this massive constructed thing in the way. Right. Exactly. Um, and there's sort of – there's like a – there's an outlet mall uh, on, on one part of it on the San Diego side. And then, you know, there's a parking lot behind the outlet mall. And then behind the parking lot, there's it's like a, a big wall. So obviously that was not always there. It was not, like, left to us by the ancient Egyptians. And so, like, how... <laughs> no, it definitely was not. Right. So, like, how how did that big wall on the U.S.-Mexico border come to be built? Right. It's useful that we start in San Diego, not only because, in fact, in the time since we originally did this live podcast in Austin, I, too, have seen this big constructed thing in San Diego, uh, but also because that's where the kind of build up at the border started in the 90s. Obviously, like the U.S.-Mexico border is a very long thing that encompasses a lot of different, you know, human and natural ecosystems. But San Diego, Tijuana is kind of like it's a twin city, right? Right. Like in a way that's matched really only by El Paso, Ciudad Juarez. It would be a single urban area if it weren't, you know, two countries. So the problem that that posed for Border Patrol agents is that somebody who was crossing without authorization was basically just crossing a street. Like, it would be—it's very—it was not hard to cross. And then once you crossed, you could just go into a house or duck down a side street. It was not very easy to identify who had crossed illegally and to apprehend those people. So they started building, actually using, like, landing mats that were military surplus from Vietnam, a physical barrier that would— would make it hard for people to just cross into this built-up urban area and hide themselves wherever. And that's kind of where we started developing this idea that a physical barrier, in addition to having a bunch of Border Patrol agents around, was going to be a useful thing, not necessarily in preventing anybody from entering, but in pushing them to places where it was going to be easier to catch them after they crossed. And and into a zone where, I guess if you think about it, right, it's like the border absent a wall in San Diego, Tijuana, would really just be like a line. Whereas the border in, say, much of Arizona is kind of like an expansive place, right? Like there is a large empty space on the U.S. side of the U.S.-Mexico border in much of this territory. And the border patrol can, so to speak, patrol that area, right? Like you can look and if you see somebody walking around there, you're like, ah, he's maybe sneaking across and and you can go pick them up, right? Right, right. And then like, you know, in – the Rio Grande Valley, you know, obviously the border itself is a river, but on the U.S. side of the river, you have these very tall bluffs that nicely give you a good vantage point of who might be crossing the river before they cross it. Right. So, so the original idea was you would find a handful of places, right? El Paso, San Diego, where there's a lot of urbanization on both sides of the border. Construct physical barriers there. And basically make sure that you would be funneled away from those like really difficult detection zones, right? And into other places where then they would be able to come pick you up more easily. And that's like a a cost-effective 
means of sort of securing the border, right? Which for for a long time previously, there had been just very little emphasis on. I mean, I was I was listening to Mike Duncan's history podcast about the Mexican Revolution, and it's amazing how many instances there in turmoil in Mexico around the turn of the 20th century, then it's like someone just – you then just go to San Antonio, right? right? And nobody would stop you. Right. Like it's kind of useful to make a couple of things explicit here. First of all is that the way that this model defines securing the border isn't no one gets across. It's if you get across, we catch you. The Border Patrol has defined border security as how many people are reapprehending. Uh, the problem, of course, is that that's really a function of how many people are trying to cross. We don't, and they've never really had robust stats on how do you estimate how many people are successfully crossing that you're not catching, how many people are you deterring because they're not going to try. Like Those things would be nice to have if we're going to talk about what makes a border secure, but that's not data that Border Patrol has ever developed in a way they feel really confident in. That also means that if you're defining border security as nobody can enter the United States because we're a sovereign nation, talking about, oh, you'll cross, but then we'll catch you is not satisfactory to you. That's the kind of world where, like, in 2014, when we had the child, you know, migrant crisis and, like, all of these pictures of large numbers of people in Border Patrol custody, the right freaked out because they shouldn't have been able to cross to begin with, even though from an apprehension standpoint, that's a success. The other implication of this is that you have people, if you're pushing people to the desert, some of them are not going to do all right. And there's a pretty robust effort out there in the desert of Arizona to— you know, try to identify by, by like academics and human rights advocates, to be clear, to try to identify uh, how many people have died crossing the Arizona desert as the result of, in part, not being able to cross in more urban developed areas. But the original context for this right, was the 90s. Bill Clinton was president, right? In 86, Ronald Reagan who was a, a rhino. Um, he signed a big sort of amnesty legislation. And then George H.W. Bush followed that up with a kind of supplemental amnesty, right, that I remember from Obama's sort of executive action era. Yeah, the family fairness program. Right. There had been this sort of, under a couple Republican presidents, this period of generosity. And then there was supposed to be a stepped-up enforcement of some kind as a complement to that. And Bill Clinton became president. The partisan politics of immigration was different then from what it is now. The politics of the state of California were different from what they are now, right? Pete Wilson was governor on a very immigration hawkish sort of platform there. And so there was this idea like we are going to build up the most sort of vulnerable sectors, right? Like the places where it would be most convenient to cross because you can just be in a nice town on the Mexico side, the places where it would be hardest for the Border Patrol to catch you, and also the places where I think it's just most feasible to undertake a large construction project in the borders of an urbanized area. Like there are plenty of buildings in San Diego. That infrastructure exists. Especially if you're using uh, military resources, which uh, is a longer standing tradition than I think a lot of the coverage, of, in, including probably mine, of the Trump administration has realized. Like looking into Attorney General nominee William Barr, who was attorney general for at the end of the H.W. Bush administration back when, you know, the DOJ was running all of immigration. 
in addition to everything else the DOJ does. You know, he made a big deal out of border security and, like, gave a speech in San Diego where he was talking about, in part, uh, using Department of Defense engineers to help construct some of this physical border barrier, which, like, San Diego is, you know, a military town. That makes a certain amount of sense. But it's also really, really wild to hear, you know, to see a speech about how important it is to stop people from crossing because we have, like, as many as six million unauthorized immigrants in the United States, which was a super high estimate for how many existed at the time, but is, of course, you know, maybe half of what we have right now. So something that's interesting also is, you know, I think that you taught me this, Dara, is that you know, when we talk about the wall, you know, the smaller the wall, the more real the wall becomes. And I think that, you know, when we talk about San Diego and we talk about, you know, I think that there's there's how Trump talks about the wall, yeah. which is Trump is talking about the wall in an almost psychological way in which the wall is, you know, a manifestation of the overall concept of border security. Yes. The wall is not just a wall. The wall includes fencing. The wall includes really stepping up enforcement just at the border specifically and not letting anyone across. The wall is the idea of the border itself. But there also is the actual wall, the actual wall that is being currently built and strengthened and the actual wall, you know, the smaller the wall becomes, the more the actual wall gets built. Right. Well, so we're like on a, you know, this is a basic like budget constraint type issue, right? But then over the course of George W. Bush's administration, there is both a lot of unauthorized immigration to the United States from Mexico, like like a lot, um, and a steady investment. I, actually, the story of why that happened is interesting, and we should probably talk about it separately sometime. And also like a steady investment in hardening the border mm-hmm. in various ways, right? So that then goes beyond like the simple, most obvious, like you cross the street from one city to another. But you're trying to be cost effective, right? Like the border is giant. And so you're trying to say, OK, at the places where it's most likely somebody might just walk across, we're going to have a wall. At places where somebody's not going to just walk across but you could like drive a jeep, right? We're going to have a kind of – Vehicle re- fencing, right. Right, which is – I don't know. I mean if you see it, right, like around uh, federal buildings, right, you have this stuff, right, where it's like you can – it's not for – immigration, but they don't want you to be able to drive a truck full of explosives like right up to the building. But it's fine if you walk there. So there's little bollards and things like that, right, that are cheaper and less disruptive. Right. And the kind of that tension between, you know, hardening and budgeting, like the biggest vehicle for hardening under the W. Bush administration was the Secure Fence Act, which was passed in 2006 and mandated about 600, 700 miles of double fencing. And then Senate Democrats the next year kind of looking at this and going, that is a lot of money and maybe not a realistic demand for all 700 miles that we're looking at, kind of carved it out and took out the double fencing requirement. So this is – if there were a more serious and specific debate happening in Congress about whether – the border has been secured to this point, you would be seeing a lot more Republicans bringing up the kind of, oh, yes, we've now built most of that fencing required in the Secure Fence Act, but 
it hasn't been the double fencing that we originally said, whereas you would have Democrats saying, well, there was a reason that we carved that out. There is double fencing along some of this. In other places, that's just not what makes sense. If you are interested, I will happily attach to the show notes an extremely detailed Government Accountability Office report that goes through every single sector of the U.S.-Mexico border as of the beginning of 2017 and talks about how much of every given sector is fenced and what apprehension rates are. And there's not a super strong correlation there because, you know, what you're actually dealing with is the specifics of what, you know, the desert is like versus the Rio Grande versus San Diego. But it's very, it is a satisfying way to look at what actually exists rather than the Trump administration narrative that it is this totally lawless, you know, you can just cross over for tea. Okay. So I, I think with the mention of the Secure Fence Act, I think we should we should take a break and we should start talking about the uh, shifting currents of immigration politics because I think that's where the wall starts to elevate out of right, tangible physical from objects. Reality. Right. Yes. Let's take a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show... You might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. To me, like the key semiotic turn in the wall is George W. Bush is president. They are building this stuff. There is border security happening. But George W. Bush is also understood by everybody to be a pro-immigration president. That was like a key part of his political persona. He favored a comprehensive immigration reform. He would mark himself down in the Ronald Reagan 
tradition. Right. I think that that's something that people forget. You know, and we've talked about on this podcast before how George W. Bush, when he was running for governor in, I believe it was 1998, he got 40 percent of the Latino vote in Texas. Like, right. He was about to say very popular. And I'm like, eh, that's kind of overstating the issue. But in terms of if we look back today in terms of a Republican running for governor or Republican running for state office, he did very well yeah, he, with non-white He audiences. was doing well, and this was his thing. And then John McCain, who obviously had been a big antagonist of Bush's early in Bush's administration, was a legislative champion of this sort of comprehensive reform legislation that the Bush administration was also for, right? So there was a big realignment like McCain building bridges with the administration. They're working on this bill. The bill also has a lot of Democratic support. Not a perfectly partisan sorted issue at this point. Some Democratic opponents as well, but Democratic congressional leaders are for it. Bush is for it. McCain is for it. There is opposition. And like the border part of this is not the controversial part, no. right? This is all getting like sorted based on do you want an expanded guest worker program and legalization for immigrants who are already here? And if you're on board with that, you're cool with whatever people want to do on the border to make that deal happen. Right. And so and so like Chuck Schumer has this sort of campaign book for the 2006 cycle for Democrats. And like one of its things is like we're going to cut illegal immigration in half. You know, there was, there was like a lot of politicking around that, Which, um, you know. Arguably did happen just because of yes. the vicissitudes of history in right. the 28 recession. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fallen probably by more than half, actually. Yeah, yeah, At any yeah. rate, McCain, though, the bill falls apart. And then McCain is running for president and winning, trying to win the Republican primary involves a lot of like John McCain proving his conservative bona fides. Right, right. And like one moment along that Trek, right, is like him doing this kind of like cranky thing where he's like, let's build the dang fence. Right, right. It's, well, this is this is his 2010 oh, Senate his primary. Tw- oh, yes. Okay. Because he was being challenged from the right by a talk radio host who was saying, how dare John McCain, who is a senator from our border state, not understand the danger of the border? So McCain does this thing where he's walking along the border fence with a border sheriff and says, let's build the dang fence. Yeah. Right. And this is seen as like at the time this unconscionable betrayal by McCain of the kind of pro-immigration reform side because he's arguing for a hardened border as if that's the solution to everything. And offense seems like an extreme solution to this problem. Well, and I would just say that it's like it's purposeful. McCain is trying to express solidarity with a viewpoint that has not been reflected in John McCain's entire political career. Right. So like he's trying to he's trying to come up with something. And he, in fact, doesn't really abandon like his old policy view on this. Right. But suddenly, like the fence emerges as this thing that we have to build. Right. And it's like it's a dang fence. Right. Like he's impatient with the non-existence of the dang fence. And it is a detachment from the question of like. Okay, how rapidly can we construct things on the border? And given the practicalities of that, what are the places where we – because you could imagine, right, like different border state people, you you might say, I don't like the way the Department of Homeland Security is prioritizing such and such sector in Texas. I think here in Arizona it needs more whatever, right? But it just becomes this like expression of will, right, that like we should cause this thing 
which at that time was the fence rather than the wall. But if we could make a fence materialize, all our problems would be solved. And I am saying to you, the immigrant skeptic, that it is like the government is not taking the problem seriously enough, that if they cared, they would have a fence here. And if they had the fence here, the problem wouldn't exist, but they are betraying you. Right. Like this is actually a fairly explicit conversation going on within the Republican Party at this time. This is like this is the same thing that you'll later hear Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush saying as they're kind of trying to shore themselves up from criticism in the 2016 primary. It's the argument of, look, I understand that our entire immigration system needs to be reformed, but people don't trust the government to keep the border secure. And the first thing we need to do is assure them that the border has been secured and only then can we move on to these other things. Now, the problem with this is, A, that's the exact thing Barack Obama was trying from the Democratic side in his first term. But B, at the same time that John McCain is saying build the dang fence, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer is talking about how immigrants are crossing and murdering people and everybody should be terrified. So there's there are political entrepreneurs in the Republican Party who have a very strong political incentive to make it seem like everybody is in mortal peril all the time, which is not the lived experience of people who are actually on the Arizona border or, for that matter, the rest of the U.S.-Mexico border, but is very powerful for white people in Arizona, some of whom didn't grow up in Arizona but, like, moved there as part of the Sunbelt migration, who— are terrified that someone will come across the border and then go another 100 miles or so and that they'll, you know, their heads will be on a pike. Yeah. It's funny to me that people talked about Obama and George W. Bush as being relatively like soft on the border when they basically kept trying the exact same things that now, you know, the idea of a virtual wall mm-hmm. or, oh you know, yes, the SB, SBI net, which, you know, was this whole idea of like this virtual wall with cameras and all this security from 2006 to 2011. It failed to cover 53 miles and cost $1 billion, which the breakdown of that is not good. But it's, it's interesting to me that in you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, this idea that, again, it's not just immigration, it's immigrants coming and then committing crimes. Mm-hmm. And the government isn't doing enough. And then when the government is doing something, whatever it's doing is not the right thing to be doing. And so I think that you know, I made this point before and I'll make it again, that the border became a psychological phenomenon. Yes, it is. It, it is what the exists in your heart. A symbolic site. Exactly. <laughs> where it became not an act, you know, the actual breakdown of how to deal with the border became, you know, when we talk about like secure Fen- the Secure Fence Act, there are still more than 90 cases tied up in a court having to do with the eminent domain claims 10 years later. That's not what people are thinking about when they're thinking about the border. They're not thinking about the fact that the border goes through people's farmland, goes through someone's sheep, and that they are going to want to, A, not have the border go through their farmland, and B, be compensated if it does. But again, it's this site of so much focus from, but not in a way that's about like, the real politique of how the border works, but based on this idea of, like, if we do these things, everyone will be safe from this thing that could happen. For the record, one of the ways in which the Trump administration is actually making progress beyond the kind of stalemate that the secure offense stuff had been in is successful eminent domain. Like, they're about to start bulldozing a butterfly sanctuary. Oh, for Um, the love. Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
um, because the Supreme Court rejected an environmental lawsuit about, you know, that use of, you know, of taking for for the purpose of building border barrier. But, you know, there's an interesting sort of turn here, right? Because we're talking about like the wall as a symbol, right? And the Obama administration, right, in its first term, their strategy on immigration was very much built around mass voter psychology, right? Like they wanted to say taking advantage of the sort of momentum behind Bush era increases in funding plus the way the recession naturally induced a decline in the number of people crossing the border. They wanted to be able to do some stuff. And then say, as a result of this stuff, the border is now secure, right? And then they wanted to say, having secured the border, we now want to have a humane and economically reasonable solution of the problem of the 11 million long-settled residents, right? So what they did was like the opposite of a million photo ops of wall construction sites and random places in the Southwest, right? Like they actually substantially stepped up interior enforcement in the United States. And the pace at which removal orders were being processed and executed went up quite a bit. There were a lot of back and forths with activist groups and at different times they would yell at me for not praising them enough for having secured the border slash yell at me for saying they had removed too many people. But they they were like trying to do something, right? Right. It was was a political theory of like how you build – it was the opposite of – well, it it was like another version of the once we assure people. Right. But instead of talking about we're trying to assure the Republican base, it was we're demonstrating to Republican political elites that we're serious and that will bring them to the table. But I mean an alternate path that we could have walked down would have been to say how would Donald Trump think about this question? Of like demonstrating to people our seriousness about the border. And like I think what Donald Trump would have said to them, right, don't mess around with immigration courts and like removal orders and blah, 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 blah. Like build a giant, big, beautiful wall on the border and like call it the Obama wall and ask for $100 billion for it in the stimulus. And when Republicans don't want to spend that much money, like complain that these like tightwad conservatives are not giving you the money we need for the security and like take photos of yourself cementing bricks into the – right? Like make a visible, tangible symbol that people can project their hopes and dreams and fears onto rather than this policy wonk, oh, the actual bottleneck in removals is this thing with the courts and if we get an extra judge, blah, 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 blah. Which which in fairness, it took them a while to do that too. Like the reason that the current immigration court backlog is so bad is because – it took until the end of the Obama administration for either the administration or Congress to realize if you wanted to step up immigration enforcement by funding DHS, you were just going to create this bottleneck in DOJ. And so we now have a situation where, like, there are over 100 immigration judges appointed by Jeff Sessions. Right. The president who really, really, really wanted just like a symbolic totem of toughness on immigration was Barack Obama. Like of all the different people in this narrative, like Reagan, Bush, Clinton, other Bush, Obama, Trump, the one there whose strategy like pivoted crucially on sort of meaningless symbolism was in fact Obama yeah. who like had a policy objective but like had a political strategy for obtaining that objective that hinged critically on a kind of symbolism and they didn't really do that. 
This was a time when you did not hear a lot from the president of the United States about fences or walls or or things like that. And it's an interesting turn on Trump because like Trump is obsessed with the symbolism of the wall and we hear about it all the time from him. But his administration is also like pushing 8 million like real levers on immigration as well. If he just like never mentioned the wall again – there would still be a lot happening on immigration policy. It does mean that the Trump administration is in a weird position because it is simultaneously pushing the wall as symbol and the wall as reality. In October, I sadly could not make it to this because it was like a two-hour drive from San Diego where I was at the time and – I decided that it was not worth attending the ceremony in person. The Trump administration had a big ceremony where they commemorated the completion of the first section of Trump's wall. And there is a plaque there that says this is the first completed section of the Trump wall. Uh, And apparently, you know, from from folks who were there, the actual wall looks kind of dinky. Like it's not, you know, this 30 foot concrete wall. It doesn't have Trump in big gilded letters on it. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you were picturing when Donald Trump was getting all of these huge rally crowds to chant build the wall. Part of the reason for that is that it's operating on past appropriated funding. But part of it is that the Trump administration is trying to build something that is practically useful. And there's a big difference between that and the symbolism of we're going to have a wall that prevents anybody from getting into the United States. So like, I mean, the simple view of this, right, is that like the Border Patrol, for boring practical reasons, wants to be able to see through the wall because they want to see what's on the other side of the wall. Right. And right, like you don't want, you know, Trump Trump refers to this as like, oh, they're going to just throw drugs over the wall and it's going to hit Border Patrol agents in the head and knock them out. That's not really what happens. But like you do want to be able to see people coming. And if somebody is going to be trying to throw something over or use a drone to like deliver drugs or something like that, you want to be able to see. Or whatever. If there's a crowd of 500 people and they're staging some kind of something. Right. Right. Like maybe it's just political theater, but you just you want to know. Right. They want a situational awareness of what's happening in Mexico. And so there are a million little instances of this where it's like the idea of I would like a gigantic impenetrable wall runs up against like, okay, if your actual, actual job is to catch people trying to sneak across the border, like what do you want? And, you know, there's like little things, right? Like a lot of this area is like relatively empty. It's relatively impassable. And like you don't want to – do giant construction projects in places where nobody is coming anyway, that you would build access <laughs> right. roads that would actually make it easier to cross the border. And so that's like boring and it's not like Donald Trump's thing personally to think about boring stuff. But I mean Darren is always making this point. But like immigration policy is a real exception to the slipshod nature of Trump's policymaking. The people doing this stuff, I mean – what John Kelly and Nielsen and Stephen Miller and, and Jeff Sessions are well informed about immigration policy. Trump is networked in with the unions representing the people in these things. So like they really are doing stuff, but it isn't an exception to the element of Trump where like he just says stuff. Right. The Trump wall, as it was talked about before, like, February of this year, like, they've since they've since kind of embraced the idea that any wall getting built is Trump wall, which is pretty obviously where they were headed the whole time. But 
in 2017 and early 2018, they made a big deal out of they were building the prototypes for like this new wall that would be Trump wall. And the request for funding for those prototypes started out by asking contractors to put in bids for a concrete wall. And then they added, okay, we'll also ask for bids for some kind of alternative materials wall, anything that isn't concrete. And they ultimately selected four concrete and four alternative prototypes, had them built in the desert outside San Diego, uh, had them tested. Trump talked for a while about how they had, like, the toughest Marines, and then the actual Marines were saying we weren't involved in, in testing this. Like, it was a weird thing. The Government Accountability Office put out a report later this year that said that of those eight prototypes, most of them had substantial construction challenges. None of them could be built on the slopes that would be required for an actual wall. At least one of the prototypes, I think one of the concrete prototypes, couldn't be built on any slope whatsoever. Uh, but this whole process was the result of somebody trying to kind of backfill, OK, what is Donald Trump said he needs from the wall? How can we require that and in a real way? And so the you know, the original standards were things like you shouldn't be able to drill through this even if you try for 90 minutes. You know, you shouldn't be able to tunnel under it for 10 feet. You shouldn't be able to scale it. You know, things that if it were possible to do would be very impressive indeed, but apparently it wasn't in fact possible to do. It's funny how engineering can get in the way of dreams so very often. Oh, so sad. Indeed. So then the wall migrates to Congress. Where this has become this kind of thing where we keep having this standoff and it's never it's never really that clear to me like what is going on here, right? Because part of Trump getting himself so wound up about the wall is that now Democrats are like really opposed to the wall. Right. 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 And, yes. I mean, I don't know, Derry, like you probably talk to immigration activists and like, what is up with this, right? Because it's like you hear some other Trump things where it's like, okay, Trump wants to crack down on immigration. So he is taking tiny babies out of their parents' arms and throwing everybody in jail. And so you can see why people would be mad about that, right? Like, it's, it's cruel. Um, Trump is deporting this dad who's been in the country for 15 years because he had a parking ticket seven years ago. So, okay. I mean, you see why Trump is doing it, but you also see why people are like, oh, no, this sucks. That's right, unfair, right. right? So it's like the wall. Like, who cares? So there, there are a few threads here. Uh, one that was building even under the Obama administration is the the idea that it is politically cost-free to just build up the border has run into resistance from border activists who, like, El Paso Juarez, you talk to people who are from that area and like they'll say, yeah, it used to be we could just, like, go shopping in Juarez for the day and come back and it was no big deal. People crossed all the time. Now it's just it really does feel like two separate places. It's just too difficult. There are too many Border Patrol agents, not just, like, at the border, but also kind of in our towns. New Mexico has a lot of activism around, like, there are so many Border Patrol agents here that it feels like our own city is being occupied. The militarization of the border for people who live there is not a cost-free thing. Like, you have lots of internal checkpoints in Texas, and, you know, that's a hassle. I mean, this is also, for... this is a political difference between Texas and California. Really. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, there there is this kind of strand of Southwestern 
progressive activism that starts calling Democrats to account. You know, in 2013, when the Senate finally passed its comprehensive immigration reform bill, it was because of a deal that would give a ton more resources for border security. And progressive groups were really torn about that. You know, it was seen as a really bitter pill to swallow. So you were already having that movement even pre-Trump. And then Trump makes the wall his big thing, and that creates an incentive to deny Trump the thing that he wants. And so Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer go into 2017 saying, we're not going to give Trump anything he wants, and we especially aren't going to give him the wall, which becomes the focal point even as the Trump administration diversifies its demands. And this is, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before. It continues to be the big truth of the Trump administration's dealing with Congress on this issue is that they just can't pick a demand and stick with it. They keep, you know, doing the the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition thing where they just add things to the wish list. But even at the point of the debate over DACA, where it seemed to basically everybody outside the room that the easy political win-win deal for both Trump and Chuck Schumer was give whatever money for the wall and legalize DACA recipients, that would have been a thing that Schumer would have had to finesse because he had said on the record so many times, no wall, no wall, no wall. Now, of course, we now know that he was prepared to do that. And it was John Kelly who, you know, did not allow that to happen even after Trump agreed to it. But that's kind of how you have the wall becoming this big symbolic problem. It's There is a broad, symbolic, we don't want to become a country that is sending the message to the world that we won't take anyone in. This runs into kind of a much bigger policy problem of the problem we have at the border right now is not a problem of people coming in without authorization and then absconding. It is a problem of more people, largely families, largely from Central America, coming in and in large numbers, seeking asylum, trying to start the asylum process in larger numbers than the Trump administration is able to process them. That's a matter of international law. Even if you have a wall, you're going to have people being allowed to come in at ports of entry, uh, including people without papers. And so it frustrates both the kind of policy argument the Trump administration is making of this is why we need the wall, because a lot of the people who they're talking about would still be able to come in, and the symbolic argument that Democrats are making about, like, oh, we don't want to be a country that is shutting out the rest of the world, because in theory, a wall would have to coexist with a robust asylum policy. And while the administration doesn't appear keen on doing that, it doesn't appear keen on doing the robust asylum policy part either. Wait, I mean, to that point, right, it's like the the classic Trump era dispute about immigration does not involve people who are successfully sneaking past the Border Patrol and the Border Patrol needs to get better at catching them. It's a family with children maybe going between the ports of entry because the ports have been closed, but then surrendering themselves voluntarily to Border Patrol and saying, I would like to make an asylum claim. So Trump doesn't like that that is happening, right? But like they are – there was this, this little girl who died this morning and is the well, thing Well, died that, la- last night. Right. This is the, the story that, that people are, are talking about now. And the whole point of that is that they weren't caught by the Border Patrol, right? Like you go across and you're actually trying to find Border Patrol because that's how you would make your asylum claim. And the question that – 
the Congress, the Trump administration, the political system is dealing with is like, what do you do with people like that in a world where there is a large number of them? It didn't used to be an incredibly controversial situation because it didn't used to be a lot of people doing it, right? And a wall, one way or another, is not is not going to address this, which I guess is fine for Democrats to make as a point from a like – ha, 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 President Trump, like the wall won't do what you want. But like also Democrats don't want to do right. what would – you know, that's that's where the, the, the sort of the, the problem becomes because like Democrats don't want to make like big legal changes to the asylum system either. And there's a much more – that's like how DACA turned into a standoff about these big changes to legal immigration. And that's like the real disagreement. And now there's this – sideshow right. dispute really about wall funding, which in part is about how do we characterize the $1.6 billion. I think it's interesting also because um, I remember – I think this was a couple of months ago, but it was a discussion about Chuck Schumer and about before the midterms, how to position democratic messaging for the midterms and for 2020. And one of the arguments is like, you know, should you bring up the fact that Donald Trump promised a wall and you aren't getting a wall when, one, you sort of are getting a wall and, two, Democrats don't want the wall? And I, I found that that's such an interesting conflict. But I do think that the fact that, you know, in the most recent meeting between Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump, you saw both Pelosi and Schumer very much saying, you know, this kind of funding is not going to happen in the way that you want. But I also think, again, when we're talking about border security, this issue has been going on for multiple administrations. But now it's another issue. And, you know, conservatives talk about this a lot that like, Donald Trump has made Democrats love federalism. Donald Trump has made everyone love the FBI. Donald Trump has made everyone like love federal prosecutors. And because Donald Trump is now he has tied his entire self-entity to the idea of border security, an issue that Obama tried to deal with, that you saw Clinton had to deal with. He has single-handedly made border security and specifically the idea of a border wall anathema for Democrats. And I find that it's really interesting just to see how like the language of the the very concept of a border wall has shifted in the imaginations of Democrats as well. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's interesting to me that like border walling started in San Diego. It started under Democratic administration. That wall is still there. As far as I know, the Democrats who run the state of California are not agitating to get rid of it. Right. Like there is an actual difference between this. I'm, I'm going to get the words wrong, but there, I, there's like a there's a culture in New Mexico and southern Texas. Right. That is like an indigenous Mexican culture. Right. Uh, it's, like, it's the kind of we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Exactly. Kind of thing. And there, exactly. And so there is a politics in the Demo- obviously Texas is a Republican state, but in the Latino Democratic parts of Texas and New Mexico, there is a real politics of we want to have an integrated cross-border community here that people can come and go across relatively freely and that we see the United States is the United States, Mexico is Mexico, but also like Laredo and Nuevo Laredo are a community together, right? And yeah, although that's been complicated a little bit in the last few years as like the situation on the Texas side of the Texas-Mexico border is totally copacetic 
and the situation on the Mexican side is often not super right. great. But I mean, those members, right, like are the people who were the original that like House members from Southern Texas mm-hmm. were like the original, like, let's not just give infinite money for right. Border militarization. This right? was the first context in which I was aware of Beto O'Rourke, for example. Right. Whereas, like, that is just not. I don't know. Like, that, that's not what San Diego is culturally. It's a it's a city with with a Spanish name that's very close to the Mexican city of, of Tijuana, but politically and and demographically, San Diego is very different from El Paso or Brownsville. It's a it's a much lower Latino population. It has more. Uh, People descended from Asian immigrants, uh, white people who, who've come in elsewhere are very big in, in the suburbs of San Diego. It's been more politically conservative uh, for the past generation or two. So it doesn't have the same kind of political context around the border and the meaning of separation from Mexico as you see in some of the Texas border cities. But it is constantly changing. Like there is now like a whole border economy in Texas, like a border enforcement economy that – there was a good Atlantic story where it was the, the mayor of one of the Texas border towns was like, well, officially I'm against all this detention. But like actually this detention center is really important to us. The the other side of the local politics of that though is that San Diego does rely on cross-border you know, trade and like – Quote, you know, what are called like legitimate trade and traffic. Um, right. You know, so so the, the existence of a functioning port at San Isidro is super important to the point where uh, earlier this week, the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Kamala Harris, of all the things that, you know, noted Senate progressive Kamala Harris could be asking a Trump administration immigration official about, was asking him how much business was it estimated the U.S. lost right. when you guys had to shut down the port of entry for a few hours on the afternoon when when Border Patrol agents launched tear gas over the border. That's not what you would expect Kamala Harris progressive hero to say. Sure. It's what you would expect Kamala Harris California senator to say, because that's a major concern for local officials and business kind of in California and Texas both, that Donald Trump seems super eager to just shut down the border. Like he's started using that phrase a lot more. He expressed frustration with Kirsten Nielsen when she refused to do it earlier this spring. He's kind of made a lot of noises that have made business leaders very upset because shutting down the border isn't just building a wall between ports of entry. It is shutting down ports of entry as well. And that is both an absolute legit logistical nightmare and the kind of thing that even if you threaten it is going to make business leaders very worried. It's also probably, you know, massive violation of international law given the concerns with asylum flows. But, you know, even even setting all of that aside, Donald Trump clearly thinks of the border as such a symbol that he thinks of it as an open or closed switch. And if it's not totally closed, then it's totally open and that's unacceptable. And this does appear to pose a problem not just for his enforcement agenda, but for the idea of the border as a place where anyone could cross in any circumstance. But I think there's also, you know, the point Ezra made in an article about this is that, like, sometimes in politics you have things that you really want. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, my pet project is this reform to how such and such works. And the way you can tell that a politician wants that so much is that they are willing to make – a lot of offers 
on other subjects in order to get their way on their key priority, right? And the wall is just not a top Trump priority in that sense, right? Like Trump is not going like through his emissaries to the Democratic leadership and being like, hey, guys, like how can we get this wall built, right? And he's also not going around the leadership, right? He's not going to Patty Murray and saying – why are you letting Chuck Schumer yank you around about this stupid wall? Like, it's $5 billion. It's not that much. Like, what can I do for you, Senator Murray, that will get you on team wall, right? Because, like, that's how you would get it done. You don't want to be like, $5 billion, that's not much money. I, I would love $5 billion. But <laughs> in the scheme of things, right. a president can get a $5 billion right. appropriation if he wants to. But he has to try. Right. And he has to, like, dialogue with people and engage. But – the metaphorical wall is like not a compromisable no. issue. And I think that that's impacting those negotiations on the Democratic side because giving in to the you know, real deal actual funding for a border construction yeah. is in <laughs> fact giving in to the Trumpian concept of border security. And that is not something Democrats want to do. But also Trump can't quite afford to win, right? Because like one thing what, yeah, he what's said. The pit? It's yeah. the dog who caught the car problem. Yes. Right. And which is the one of the great – you know, I've brought it up. I think all of us have brought it up. It's one of the great issues of politics is that if you have a thing that you ran on, you actually can never achieve the thing that you ran on if you ever really want to run again. Because saying we did the thing doesn't work nearly as well as we will do the thing. But, they, but I think there's something more specific, right? So like one thing Trump said all the time is that we have drugs pouring across the border, which is sort of true. And then he also says – ports of entry. Right. That we need the wall to stop the drugs from pouring in, right? But the wall will not stop the drugs from pouring in because the drugs are not sneaking around, right? They are like in the trucks that go across the border because – for the same reason that legitimate commerce goes in trucks, you just – you can't move that much stuff in random areas. And there's a simple trade-off, right? Like we could say every single parcel that comes through the ports of entry has to be subject to an incredibly invasive search. But that would be a huge pain in everyone's butt, right? Like commerce would shut down. Tourism would be incredibly annoying. And no administration has actually wanted to go do that. As long as the wall isn't there, Trump can keep saying that the Democrats are responsible for fentanyl coming across the border. But it isn't true. So like Democrats giving in to him on this point will simply put this whole question of quote unquote shutting down the border like much more squarely in his face. And you could imagine a world in which, you know, Democrats see it that way. But it's like both both sides want to have this fight about the wall. I think on Trump's side, because winning would not really help him. And I think on Democrats' side, because they don't really want to address what they think about the asylum question. Right. This is... The problem is, and this is something that I say all the time, the immigration debate in America is usually facts as a stalking horse for values. The problem is that right now, the symbolic conversation that we're having about what kind of country the U.S. wants to be, while it is the most important and fundamental question for figuring out what kind of immigration policy we want, doesn't obviously lead to 
answers that are going to, you know, improve the parts of the system that are not functioning at peak capacity now. The kind of good government bipartisan interest in, say, appointing more immigration judges doesn't really exist in how do we improve processing at ports of entry for asylum seekers? How do we expand capacity there? How do we make sure that people are going legally to ports of entry and that they're not being turned back and told to wait for indefinite amounts of time, which is what is happening at ports of entry now? You know, those are theoretically good government questions, but for that to get addressed as kind of an immediate capacity question, the administration would have to be okay with changing that in a way that's going to allow more people to come into the U.S. who may not ultimately have their asylum claims approved. And that's really what they're trying to prevent. Their argument, and as a policy argument, is, well, many of them will abscond into the U.S. because we can't detain them for the whole time their asylum claims are pending. But the political argument is they have defined border security as nobody gets in who shouldn't come in. And so the difference between somebody being allowed to cross and then ultimately being ordered deported and somebody, say, having to wait on the Mexico side is actually a really big politically important difference in addition to being a question of policy and capacity. So that interconnectedness of the the parts of the system that are in obvious crisis and the parts of the system that the administration would or wouldn't be willing to change is what makes it so difficult to have a, a policy conversation about this, even if you take Donald Trump out of the equation. And of course, you can't take Donald Trump out of the equation because every couple of mornings he'll log on to Twitter and say something about how the border needs to be shut down. Well, with that, it's maybe time to shut down the podcast, get ultimate security here. Um, you <laughs> build know, a border around the studio. Build a, build, build a wall around your podcast loyalties. Don't listen to any other shows. Uh, you know, just just stick with us. Um, so so thanks to everybody uh, here for, for listening. Thanks to Sonia Herrero, uh, our engineer for this episode. And uh, the weeds will return on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.